0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Axel Merck, CIO and founder of Merck Investments. Axel is an expert on all things macro. In this conversation, we discuss the Federal Reserve and what he calls its sledgehammer approach to monetary policy. We also talk about why the Fed might be driving the economy into a recession. We got Axel's take on the markets and why we might see a more nuanced market in the next year. We also talked about inflation, gold, the dollar, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Axel, and I think you will too. Axel Merck, CIO and founder of Merck Investments. It is so great to welcome you on the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Well, you're someone who's known as a macro thinker. You have a lot of experience with international investing and also a lot of experience with gold. So it is so great to have you on and have this conversation, this really important time, just given your expertise across many, many different areas. And I was hoping, Axel, maybe we can just start with your macro view today. What is that macro view for you globally and also here domestically in the U.S.?
1: Yes, and maybe let me give you some some context. Um, So, we we actually do us. We're not just talkers and thinkers. We invest. uh, We manage about a billion these days. And as you pointed out, we we come from the currency space, although most of what we do is in the precious metal space, mining space these days. And I I mention that as a context because much of our work on the fundamental side is has been based on looking into central banks around the world and this was way before 2008 before everybody thought it was sexy to look at central banks um and and so we've always looked at these these global dynamics um i've said for example the the road to hell is paved with good intentions just Going through the financial crisis and all these things that have come about. And so, of course, where we are now is uh, central banks are trying to fix some of the mistakes that they have done in in recent years. although, and we can go into that, I do have my doubts that they're approaching this the right way. And so right now, we have a sledgehammer approach. We're slowing the global economy down. Um, and that sledgehammer whacked things quite badly and and quote unquote everything fell last year um if there's one kind of little peak before we go into more detail and i ran too long um i think we'll see a more nuanced market next year um that doesn't mean i'm optimistic for next year but markets might just work a little better next year than they have this year
0: Yeah. Well, uh, one thing about this show is feel free to go on as long as you'd like. I've even had guests give 15 minute answers. um, And I think the audience does not mind. But I think you've kind of given us a nice outline uh, to at least kick off this conversation. And um, I'll just you know, bring up some of the ideas here with you. And you were talking about the central banks are really trying to fix some of the mistakes. And it might be helpful just to give folks some, some, some context here because you said maybe that's something you might want to go into. Let's kind of start with there, the mistakes that were made and how now they're trying to fix them.
1: All right, how many hours do we have? Um, the, <laughs> it all started, well, well started... <laughs> I guess, in the earliest of 20th century. But, but as far as the financial crisis is concerned, one of the big mistakes, in my view, um, to just use that as a starting point, was the purchase of mortgage-backed securities by the Federal Reserve. So I go quite far back. I could go back further. And, and the reason I go there is because this was, in, in modern times, the first time where the Federal Reserve crossed a red line. They went into fiscal policy. Um, Monetary policy is supposed to look at how much credit there is in the economy, but it is the role of politicians to allocate credit. And by saving the mortgage market, so to speak, it is a very direct channeling of credit into a specific aspect of the economy. Now, clearly, we had a housing bust, and there were all kinds of reasons, but uh, and the emergency measures of the Fed. But it has become part of a toolbook. And and without listing every mistake that has happened along the way, um, Ben Bernanke, um, who obviously ran the Fed for several years, wrote a book. Um, it's very torturous to read, but I did the audience the, the favor of reading it. And but the, the, what the, the context here is. Bernanke sees all the things that have happened as a baseline, as a baseline for future action. And that is a huge, huge problem because when a a central bank veers from, from just worrying about credit, they are micromanaging an economy. That leads to inefficient capital allocation on the one hand. And on the other hand, it leads to political backlash. And so, and it, it goes beyond growth drivers. It goes to the rise of populism. Now, there are more reasons than central banks why we've had a rise of populism, but it's a big contributing factor. Um, and, and at the tail end of that, um, a lot of people these days are very skeptical of capitalism. Well, what we've had isn't capitalism. And I think we, as, as influencers, speakers, uh, whatever it may be, have, done a very poor job in explaining what capitalism is. Uh, And so people are favoring policies that are extremely counterproductive. And so it's it's this this negative feedback loop. And and just to put it into a little more context of what we have today, and this is not new to today's era, we have it in the 1970s as as well, is when you're hit with an economic shock, in this case, the the stagflationary shock, the political reaction tends to be a counterproductive one, and and so and, and that's always been the case. Um, it's it's popular to have price controls in that that don't increase supply, right? We don't increase oil supply when when instead we we have uh, excess profit taxes and things like that, things that are or, or give people a check um, when when uh, when that doesn't increase the supply of goods and is just inflationary. But you're supposed to have the Federal Reserve or central banks as a counterbalance to that. And and so they have failed in that. And and so there's some very deep issues that aren't fixed by, by being higher for longer at the Fed.
0: Yeah. And let's I would love to um you also mentioned like this kind of sledgehammer um approach. And um, you know, let's talk about that. And, you know, I would love to hear maybe Maybe you just kind of your general take on Fed policy of late and the rate hikes. Uh, it sounds like are, are they're making a mistake. Is that what I'm hearing? I'd love to just kind of hear more from you.
1: Well, uh, rates should be coming down right now if you were to follow a Taylor rule, um, although from much, much higher levels. Now, I'm not suggesting they should necessarily be cutting right now, but the the big mistake is that the Fed has discretionary power in the first place. Um, the Fed has given us the Great Depression, has given us great inflation during the 1970s, and has given us the great inflation now. And somehow, um, they think that by doubling down, they can fix this. Uh, If we had instead just uh, interest rates based on inflation and, and possibly unemployment, you would have something that could be more reactive and wouldn't be prone to some inherent problems of of, you have a, basically a debating club. And when you have, and that they're trying to reach consensus on decisions. And so, almost by definition, they're going to be late. And so, they were late in ra- raising rates. And now they've cornered themselves and they've all but promised in being late in cutting rates. And none of that, and, and to just, rather than just talking about the rates, once you have high inflation, and there I give Bernanke credit because he's illustrated that um, in his book as well. It is not linear anymore. It's not that inflation just goes down. We had that in the late 1940s, but other than that, whenever we've been hit with with um, with high inflation, inflation becomes very volatile. And so, what you need is you need a new framework. Um, Larry Summers pointed that out. You don't get out of high inflation by just saying your your models were bad. Um, the Federal Reserve still has this, I call it idiotic, that's a technical term, um, framework of, of trying to average uh, past inflation and then looking forward to new inflation. And when Powell, the Fed chair, was asked the other day, he said, oh, in 2025 or 2026, they'll revisit this. Uh, You've got to get rid of the bad stuff to to look forward. And so the only thing that the Fed has said is they'll be higher for longer. And recently we had um in uh, we we had the Federal Reserve say, okay, they're gonna move from raising rates 75 basis points or zero point three quarters of a percent to half a percent, and which is very dovish. Um but the last thing the Federal Reserve wants is the market to feel that this is dovish. So he did the impossible and convinced us that he is very tough and he's possibly gonna put rates much, much higher. Now, one thing before ranting too long, I should mention, the whole point of raising rates is to break things. So you want to, in, in in economic terms, it is to tighten financial conditions. You want to slow down the economy, but because we have an economy that has so much credit, you don't want the wheels to fall off. And so they want to go this, this cliff walk, and that's why the, the, rather than going up by 5% in a the meeting, they push it as much as they think they can, and so whenever the market says, okay, you haven't done too much, everybody's euphoric, and then the, the Fed says, oh, my God, no, no, we want to tighten the conditions. And, and, and so that's part of the reason you have this volatility in the market. But the only thing we really know is that they want to hike rates, but they don't quite know what they want to do next. And uh, just imagine we're going to have in the coming months, the year-over-year comparisons on inflation are going to look much better. Mm-hmm. And so that will give them an excuse to pause. It, in my view, it will be at the May meeting, and I can explain in detail as to why I think it will be the May meeting while they'll pause. But um, and then what? Right. And let's assume that they pause at some point. Uh, inflation might come down because of the year over year comparisons. The economy is going to slow down. But what is the framework for them to move forward based on that? And and so we have very little of that. And I don't think that is very, very helpful.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, again more more great things to um, dig into further you mentioned that you might want to explain a bit um your i guess your thesis on when and why they might pause um let's explore that a bit
1: well it's it's actually quite simple it's the calendar um the uh, the fed knows it has to slow down and uh, they have promised the market to be tough and inflation numbers are likely going to come in lower they may be higher than expected but they'll be lower than than recent numbers and the other thing to know is that they need to see a few numbers that are lower now then separately the, the one inflation metric the the federal reserve looks at is the so-called PCE that it's not the CPI it's a different metric that one is published with a four week delay and uh, the february PCE report is published at the end of march after the march fed meeting and the next fed meeting will be in may on which in early may on which they can look back on that and so it is all a very complicated way of saying it, is they don't really have a chance of 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 stopping to high grades before that. Now, the one exception is, is if that the wheels falling off scenario is coming to fruition because they don't want that. And had you asked me a few months ago, I would have given that fairly high odds. Right now, I don't, it can happen tomorrow or it cannot happen at all. Right now, I've lowered my own assessment of how likely that is. Um, if you look at, for example, the carnage we had in the crypto space, there hasn't been much spillover to the banking system. And unlike popular opinion, the Fed's job is not to manage and worry about the stock market. It's the bond market, and importantly, the banking system itself. And so if the banking system can stomach whatever shock is upon us, it will be fine. Uh, when you had the guilt problems in the UK, um, or when the central banks have to, the, the Federal Reserve has to give a loan to foreign central banks, those are the canneries in the coal mine that you want to watch. But those sort of incidents kind of have abated. And obviously, it's always the unknown unknown that we should be worried about. But right now, it looks like the, it's going to be a good old recession that will get the Fed eventually to turn. And that's going to take a while, right? They will wait for this economy to throttle down quite substantially before they'll change their mind.
0: Got it. Um, you are also when you were talking about um, inflation, you made a point how it's not linear, and it just goes down, it can become more um, volatile. Do you? Do you think? I mean, I I would love just kind of explore your thoughts on inflation more, because like some of the conversations I've had is a lot of its supply side uh, driven. So like, what can the Fed really do about inflation like can they really solve this or can they just create i guess just crush demand like what do you what do you think
1: well a, a few different things right um, if, part of the reason why i say it's going to be volatile is because these dynamics become unstable they they it, it, it first it's a stagflation or a shock it's a supply side shock and then it spills over. It spills over to, to labor disputes. Uh, in Europe, you see strikes come up. Oh, well, just take the railway here in the US, right? Those are symptoms that, um, that there is a potential push for higher wages that, that could be inflationary. Um, or on consumer goods, right? Things going up. And so it's going to pop up in various places. Now, what the Fed can do? Um, very curiously, uh, Powell, just a few days ago, said that um, we should have more immigration. Um, and uh, and basically, if you increase the supply of labor, then that would, quote-unquote, fix or address the supply side things. And the way, why that is curious is only Greenspan used to be very involved in telling Congress what to do. And ever since then, uh, Fed shares have stayed away from that. And at the same time, Powell appears quite desperate saying, well, there isn't much we can do. We only have our sledgehammer. We can't really increase supply. So let's nudge Congress to do some things. Now, the the, the downside of that is the more you meddle with Congress, the more Congress will meddle with you. And uh, if I can make a little detour here, totally. why it is bad for Congress to meddle with the Fed Um, and it doesn't matter whether it is a Elizabeth Warren or Donald Trump or whatever it is, um, the cheapest Fed policy is words. So a Fed official says something, the market reacts. And when the Fed gets torpedoed from people of influence, they may need to do more. They may need to actually raise rates or lower rates, whichever way they want to go, right? And so it makes Fed policy less effective when there's interference, um, aside from the fact, of course, that Congress can change the rules in a way that, that's not, not, not constructive. But um, that's why when, when, when the fiscal side interferes with monetary side, it, it tends to be counterproductive and it makes it more difficult to, to conduct policy. Um, Powell, I don't think, understands the political implications of everything that he does. Um, and I also don't think he he fully understands the dynamics, generally speaking, of how inflation works. Yeah. Uh, he is a lawyer, he is a consensus builder in some ways, but just like his predecessors, he is worried about the problem of the day, not worried about the problem of tomorrow and think that with the bazooka, they can do many things. Although yes, they do see there have some limitations, but ultimately they don't really care about unemployment other than in their speeches. They care about the stability of the financial system um it's a club of banks and as long as the banks are doing okay they can do what they want to do or need to do i think they need to do
0: right then um here's like my, my follow-on question that if they just care about the stability of like the financial system and whatnot um what does it kind of mean like or what could it potentially mean for like the societal implications so i think at the very top of this conversation you're talking about um more of, like the social implications like you take that sledgehammer, you crush, you, you you put you put a lot of people out of work or something. I don't know what are there those kinds of consequences to these policies that folks should think about.
1: Well, yes, and it is the Fed's job to take the punch bowl away, right when the party gets hot, and uh, and it's all the more important that when they make what at times will be very tough for the economy that you don't have the added trouble of having to, to fight the, the political crossfires um, that are of your own making, because there will be political crossfires in any case. But if you contribute to that, if you put fuel into the fire, and I, I mentioned mortgage-backed securities, right? I mean, that's the most benign of the intervention that, that we've had is over to the fiscal side. And during the pandemic, of course, it was uh, all the tools out there um, pretty much micromanaging the economy. Um, and to just take that a step further, right? Um, Bernanke, I mentioned him because he said explicitly, if it were up to him, he would do anything to get full employment. And to me is, uh, he, Bernanke didn't use these words, but a planned economy would be just fine with him, um, as long as you give everybody a job, right? And, and so the more the Fed goes into a political direction like that, um, that's, that's a problem. Now on the flip side, as you point out, right? The Federal Reserve induced the Great Depression, um, and uh, inflation right, might give ho- higher wages, but ultimately lowers the standard of living of people. And, and yes, there is a backlash. There's an old saying that in a, in a good economy, the Fed, you can get away with bad monetary policy, but in a bad economy, it is very difficult even to implement a, a good policy. And so the so-called Fed independence has limits. And it's all the more important that the folks at the Fed um, are humble. And uh, unfortunately, I don't see that to the extent that that I think is warranted.
0: That was a really good quote that you had just there. Um, you know, um, that was a great one. I want to um, also explore this topic because I heard you bring it up, and so I was taking notes. And you were mentioning um, like stagflationary shock. Um, so stagflation, is that something that you're expecting? Are you expecting more of a stagflationary environment? What's your thesis there?
1: Well, to, to a full disclosure, a year ago or so, we thought that risk is very high and then we put together an exchange-traded fund and we launched an exchange-traded ETF in the springtime, um, uh, specifically because we thought there would be a stagflationary environment. And more importantly, then we thought that stagflationary environment is not gonna be just a few months, but it might be years. And the reason why the stagflationary periods can last years is because policymakers tend to react in a counterproductive way. Um, price controls in the early '70s being kind of one of the more obvious examples. Or I'm speaking from California, and the um, the, the local um, California government wants to introduce a, a price gouging tax. Well, for for energy companies. Well. We don't like high energy prices, but when you increase taxation, you don't increase output, right? The way to increase the output is to increase supply, and the politicians can do a lot. We have about, I think, 80 different blends of fuel in the US, and California has a very unique blend. And so whenever one refinery is offline, the prices spike. Well, you could allow the other blends to to be sold in California, and then prices would come down. You'd have more competition. So it's it's those sort of things as an example. One of the things in a stagflationary environment is that you have higher inflation and lackluster economic growth. And while everybody was worried about stagflation, the sort of things you might want to do in a stagflation environment, at least this year, haven't worked all that well. Because the thing you want to do, in our view anyway, is you want to be investing in inflation-protected securities, in oil and gold and real estate. And especially on the inflation-protected security side, um, when you invest in those, you're locking in real interest rates. Now, and when the Federal Reserve is super tough, well, real interest rates are actually going up. And so the Fed is actually doing the right thing. Uh, and the question that I have is really: Have we reached peak hawkishness, and have we have we had the Fed to pivot? And then, in, in as we're talking here of late, um, Treasuries have been rallying because they're reflecting a weaker economy, and so now real interest rates, meaning interest rates net in of inflation, have actually been coming down. And something like inflation protected securities may actually be doing quite well. And so. It's in this context when when a stagflationary period lasts longer, um, that may do well. And, and one of the problems in a stagflationary period is that equities might do okay on a nominal basis, but net of inflation over the medium term is doing poorly. And so you really would want to invest in the CPI and inflation index, but that's not possible. And so what we do is we we have heavy emphasis on, on tips um, simply because of the risk profile. Right? Some people, as I mentioned, we do gold, but gold is volatile. Right? It, it, you, i mean some people are for all their portfolio but most do not and so you want to look for for something that's kind of closer to a risk profile of a of a bond portfolio
0: got it um no that was an interesting way of putting it that you would you'd would want to invest in the cpi but of course you can't do that so you have to um kind of look for these different areas um you mentioned gold uh and I, and a lot of folks who watch and listen they are they tend to be curious about gold. Um, what is kind of your thought process on um, gold, and you know the context of gold within a portfolio?
1: So gold is a brick, a barbaric relic, right? But gold doesn't change, and that's the beauty of it. Um, gold is the purest indicator, in my view, of monetary policy. Unlike silver, already has a lot of industrial use, much more than gold has, and so gold is a much purer indicator. of of just a steady state. And gold is attractive when cash isn't attractive. And the question is how to look at cash. There are many ways in in which to look at cash. Markets are forward-looking. And so when I think about how to value a price of gold, I look at more forward-looking indicators, and that could be five-year or 10-year yields in the bond market, including um, real interest rates, Now, I know that a lot of people in the gold community say, well, those are useless, those are uh, manipulated, why on earth would you want to do it? And what i like to say to that is that first of all, nobody knows what inflation will be in 10 years from now. Um, Not the folks at the Fed, not you, no I, nobody. But what these longer term indicators reflect is the market's confidence in the Fed's ability to manage inflation. And the changes in that assessment do have an impact on the price of gold, and that is why the price of gold, which isn't really correlated to anything in the long run, but has a tad of a higher correlation to something like longer-term real interest rates, TIPS yields, for example. And, and so that's one way that we look at the price of gold, and that is one significant headwind that gold had this year as the Fed was increasing how "quote unquote" tough it is. And that's also why gold of late has been doing better, because now on top of that toughness, which hasn't gotten any tougher, we now have a slowing economy, which reflects lower interest rates, not in the near term, but in the long term, and the eventual Fed pivot that will have to come at some point. Now, there are lots of ifs in that that, that scenario, but um, that's one way I like to think about gold. Now, what we see in in the investors that we have, we really see, I I like to group them in three different types of gold investors, um, just on the physical side. Um, One is the one that I just mentioned, right? The the investor who is concerned about the erosion of the purchasing power of the dollar. And uh, while I give my framework, most investors look more at the short-term CPI and whatnot. Um, but that's one type of investor. The other investor is the diversification investor. Um gold has a low um, correlation to to equities in the low run, near zero. That said those correlations are not stable. And uh, a lot of investors were frustrated this year in particular, as well, that quote unquote everything went down and, and gold did better than 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 equities or um or bonds did, but there was still a very high correlation and uh, And so that's part of the reason I think these correlations will break down and and move more differently. And then the third type of investor um, who hasn't been around too much of late is the speculator. A speculator loves a good trend, loves volatility. And those investors were allude to the meme stocks, to the crypto space. and the question is where they're going to go next, but um, let gold go on a significant trend and they may well be attracted to go back there. And that, that then exacerbates the volatility. They're obviously not very loyal investors. They'll they'll phase in and out, um, but they've been a little bit on the sideline in, in these different markets in recent years.
0: Got it. Um, and I I really like what you said that, you know, one of the beauties of gold is that it's the purest indicator of monetary policy. That's fascinating. Wait, can we just explore just a little bit further, like um, what it says about, I guess, their current confidence in in monetary policy?
1: Yeah, well, uh, one thing I, I said many years ago already is there is no such thing anymore as a safe asset and investors may want to take a diversified approach of something as mundane as, as cash. Um, and, and obviously, and I, I somehow, Take gold into that now. Gold is is obviously safe in the sense that it doesn't change, and uh, except the moment you touch it, you introduce counterparty risk. Right, you could lose it, or somebody can steal it. Um, but your daily living expenses are, of course, in a local currency, and so that that creates its own sort of challenges of of how you want to to manage that sort of risk. Um, We've been, a lot of people in the gold world think, oh my God, central banks are going to blow up the world and then we go back to basics and have a great reset of sorts. I'm actually a far more pessimistic investor and says, no, we're going to go further and further away into this environment. And part of the reason we're speaking is because we're investors and you can have a portfolio optimization, a portfolio allocation in a world where you don't have a safe asset. And so you just, deal with it, that cash isn't safe anymore. Uh, gold obviously changes in value as well in any one currency. Um, and and clearly um, the purchasing power of the dollar, any currency has eroded over time. Um, governments have incentives to, to create debt. Once they have a lot of debt, they have an incentive to debase the value of that debt. And you do that through inflation, right? Um, and so very few countries um, or none actually do it well, um, have have figured out, right, how to retain the curses in and call the currency. And the reason is that they have no interest in doing that, right? Um, and, and so uh, in the U.S., we've built up entitlements over entitlements. Well, we've seen in the, in the debt crisis in the Eurozone, taking entitlements away is very, very difficult. And then the other side of that, though, is politicians are amazing can kickers. They can kick the can down the road, right? Um, If you look in the blogger sphere, they'll say, oh my God, uh, um, the end of the world is coming tomorrow. No, it's going to take another week because they'll figure out yet another thing to to extend the agony. And uh, in that sense, the debt markets are really the best ones to impose discipline. But as we've also seen, central bankers are more than happy to throw out the rule book and uh, and uh, put the debt market back into submission, and then the valve is that the currency um, can go down the drain, right? And and that's part of the reason why investors have, um, own gold.
0: Yeah, well, that, that that's a they are great can kickers. Um, I just wonder if maybe it, one day someone's going to have to kick the last can. I wonder, um, and what that would look like. You're just talking about currencies too, and I and I know that's an area you have focused on. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about outlook on the U.S. dollar. Like, what is kind of your thought process as it relates to the U.S. dollar?
1: Well, the U.S. dollar obviously has gone up quite substantially until not long ago. And historically, there tend to be secular turning points when when you have made at, at major junctures. Um, recessions tend to be um, such major turning points. and to me, there are two scenarios. We may have reached the peak uh, in the dollar already, and that was with Powell pivoting from 75 basis points to 50 basis points, rate hikes, the peak hawkishness, so to speak. As we are then moving, even though it may be slow, to a more reflationary world, Um, China reducing COVID restrictions is reflationary as well. Um, And the context here is that when the, when you, you are in a reflationary environment, a lot of the world is borrowing in US dollars. And that is when you borrow in US dollars, that's really a dollar short. And then conversely, when you have a contraction, you and, and a panic, you do short covering and that gets the dollar to to go up. And that gets me to the second scenario. The reason why I'm not certain that we've reached the, the dollar peak is because, and we haven't talked about this too much, And I said, we're going to have a slowing economy. Well, historically, equity markets bottom about halfway to two thirds during a recession. Based on the metrics that the bureaucrats have figured out how to measure a recession in the US, we're not in a recession yet, or unlikely at least. And we'll get into that. And that means we may not have reached the, the low in the equity markets. And assuming that is correct, as we go down there, there may well be some scenarios where volatility is going to surge um we talked about the potential for the wheels off scenario um i don't know what that is going to be but the odds of something like that happening is high well if that were to happen we could have one final surge in the dollar um before we reach the the peak in the in the currently secular bull market in the dollar and then i wouldn't be surprised if we're going to have a weaker dollar for years to come
0: got it Um, And then just going back again to like the top of this conversation, um, because if we look back at 2022, um, across markets, like everything fell um, in the last year. And you were talking about that we might see a more nuanced uh, market next year, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're optimistic per se. Let's explore what you mean by um, a more nuanced market
1: yeah, I've alluded to that a little bit with uh, correlations not being stable, right? In a in a panic, correlation goes to one, everything goes up. And in a normal encroach environment, traditional portfolio diversification works. And just when we think we know how markets work, they're gonna throw us another curveball. So investing is really about maximum frustration for the largest numbers of investors. And we had bonds obviously plunge and equities plunge. Now, and, and by the way, one of the, the most popular strategies for years and in institution investors had been these risk parity approaches where you allocate equal buckets of risk to bond and equities. And we already, 18 months ago, talked about in a high inflation environment, these things cannot work. And then sure enough, they broke down and had some of the most severe losses. Um, now, with inflation, at least for the coming months, coming down and with the Fed tightening the screws, we might experience a more traditional sort of environment, which means bonds might rally, equities might sell off, and that's consistent with that. And if we have a deep recession, and that mostly applies to a deep recession, um, if you take 2008 as a very deep one, um, in that sort of environment, equities take a long time to bottom out, whereas something like the gold miners tend to be much, much earlier, and the price of gold also quite early because there's the greater anticipation um, of that pivot. And so that's why these things react more. And so if I take that together, that's more of a traditional thing. Um, Now, this is all the big disclaimer, right? Most forecasts are wrong. My crystal ball isn't necessarily any better than anybody else's. What I would encourage any, any listener to do is that you take what I say, what others that you have in your program will say, as an input to whatever their own framework is, right? To think about scenarios. I try to get people thinking about scenarios. Um, And then obviously I adjust as as reality sinks in and, and something else. But the important thing I think for investors is that they have a framework. Even a mediocre framework is good. Having no framework is bad because then you're just gonna jump on the latest idea that you're here somewhere by some pundit, and then you're almost certain to lose money. Whereas if you have some sort of system um, then you can cross-check that with the information that's coming in. And it, it doesn't really matter whether it's a technical one or a fundamental one, um, but you need to have some sort of approach to to survive in these markets.
0: I really like that, like having your own framework, looking at this as inputs and really the importance to of doing your own homework and research. And I guess when you look at like your framework, like what do you think about like where you want to be or like how much like exposure you want to have? Like, how how I don't, I don't know what you're able to share, what you're willing to share, but what is kind of your framework telling you?
1: Well, let me first tell you a protocol joke in the industry. So the, the retail investor panics and liquidates the portfolio when the going goes tough. The professional investor conducts risk management. It does the same thing, but they apply a fancier term. Um, and, but um, more to the, the substance of that, right? we all told, well, we're supposed to have some sort of risk profile. And that that is indeed the case, right? I and mean, we like the risk on the way up. We don't like it on the way down. And so we got to think about what risk can you stomach. And one of the things I, I just hated during the financial crisis is when people said at the bottom in 2009, you should double down and buy more equities right now. And the reason I hated it, it may have been the right call to load up on stocks when we were at the bottom of the market in in the spring of 2009, but it was completely irresponsible. And the reason it was irresponsible is that on the way up, people didn't take chips off the table. They had loaded more risk assets into their portfolio than they should have. And then they lost half of their net worth um, on the way down. So when you have been overexposed and lose half of your net worth, you've got to not double down and be in the casino, right, because you've got to live another day. And so, and that's part of the reason why it's so important to have a framework. You've got to take chips off the table when the times are good, so that you have that ammunition when the times are bad. And if you haven't done that, well, you've got to cut your losses and and try to, to, to move on, right? And And so, when I look at at my portfolio, so in, in 2007, I liquidated all my equities because I did not like what I saw. Um, that was good. The not-so-good thing is I didn't load back up on equities in the spring of 2009, right? And, and, and part of that is, though, what is your goal? Is your goal to beat the S&P 500? Well, then maybe buy 110% of the S&P 500 because in the long run, equities go up. But is that really the sort of risk profile that you can stomach? And by all means, I, I don't recommend that for everybody. Most people have other goals, right? They want to finance a retirement. they may want to save money for college or this or that. and And the best investment that I, the only, one of the few I can recommend on, on on in public is that you invest in yourself, right? If you invest in yourself, you are an income generating machine and and to the extent that you can do that, that can yield a higher return. Um, and that's both in terms of education and in terms of health, right? Now, everything beyond that is, is really somewhat secondary. Um, the other thing, we talked about the Federal Reserve only can it, uh, being able to control supply. Well, on the individual level, the thing you have much more control over than your investments is your expenses, right? So you invest in your education in your health and manage your expenses. That's much more important than whether you buy gold or equities or bonds or crypto or whatever it may be. Now. Beyond that, I do what I can afford. And so I have a little bit of everything. I guess I have a lot of gold and gold mining compared to the typical investor. But I, uh, we haven't talked much about gold mining. But, and it's, 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 a, it's a broad sector with many opportunities, but it's a very risky sector. It is not for the hand of heart, of heart right? You've got to be able to afford it. Um I own some real property i'm I'm about to buy some forest as well, uh, but that works for me right that doesn't work for everybody and 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 so one of the things i'd like to tell people is buy stuff that you know right a lot, most people spend more time buying the next iphone than um than thinking about which investment to buy yeah. and that's usually not a very smart thing to do.
0: Axel, I'm like loving everything that you're saying because, you know, these are really just kind of important reminders uh, for folks and like, you know, investing in yourself and and controlling the things you can control. Um, I have like just a quick kind of random follow-on question because it's something I'm curious about. And I'll admit, like, I just don't know the answer. You mentioned like gold miners. Um, Why invest in gold? gold miners and not just like you know the physical bullion or something just I'm, I'm not familiar as to why but what's what's the appeal of investing in the gold miners and sorry for the naive question i just don't know
1: no not not at all um they are they all have very different risk profiles and that that's kind of the main the main answer right um, the price of gold has a volatility of uh, similar to the equity markets with some surges right um, sometimes uh, significantly higher than that when you go to the gold miners, the risk profile tends to be higher. The gold miners is really a broad spectrum of, of, of companies to, the, to the, the, the big producers, to small exploration companies. Um, and you introduce management risk, corporate risk. And the gold miners tend to do what investors want them to do. And so in recent years, they got their house in order. Now you would think that's a good thing, but it, not necessarily, because what that means is that the big gold miners have um, a lot of cash these days and have not invested in increasing their resources and at some point they'll deplete those. And so the reason you, at least a the theoretical argument to invest in the miners is that you have a leveraged exposure to the price of gold. Um, you have a fixed t- price in which you mine the gold and, 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 that's, and then as the price of gold goes higher, um, you have a disproportionate increase in your profits. Now, in practice, it's more complicated than that because, um, in a stagflation environment, by well, guess what, the cost of production goes up because labor cost goes up, um, uh, fixing your machinery goes up. Uh, Twenty to twenty-five percent of your production cost is energy uh, that can go up. And so, that said, a lot of these stagflationary headwinds are probably going to flatten out and eventually going to turn into tailwinds as some of the the recent price hikes are, are baiting. When you go down to the exploration companies. You're literally buying options on on uh, um, on them striking gold, um, and then they're betting on being acquired. Now we do a lot of that. We we manage the closing fund where where we help finance many of these small companies, and uh, in that financing we try to be part of that that value creation. But um, this when these these smaller companies in particular they always just get funding until the next stage in their growth. And so financing conditions are tougher these days, which means the weaker players might not be able to survive the next financing route. The only quote-unquote good news is that these exploration companies can throttle down expenses and wait until the environment is better. But you really have an almost extreme volatility at, at the low end. Now, um, one thing I mentioned is these smaller companies want to be bought, and these bigger companies haven't invested enough. Well, you would think there's a lot of merger activity. a lot of that hasn't happened, and the few mergers that have happened haven't been kindly received by the market. Um, that said, there aren't many years left for these big companies to get their act together and acquire companies, and so if they don't do it, then the mid-sized companies might merge, or the smaller ones might might bundle their resources more. So it's it's a fascinating space, um, a lot happening. What we do is we try to to buy these explorers that that have sites near where the bigger ones are, so that they're more likely targets to be acquired. Um, and ultimately, you need to look at the management teams. Anybody who does this, this is it is a very speculative space. So I'm not telling people, hey, put all your money into that. And uh, we take a very diversified approach to that because not all of these small companies will make it. Um, And so I would say, uh, but people do it because they like to get a lot of bang for the buck, right? Um, They like the, uh, that's one of the funny things about the gold investors, right? They're worried about the purchasing power of the dollar, but then they fully embrace the at times extreme volatility in the mining sector. Um, And so it's a, to me, it's just, uh, we think there are fascinating opportunities available, but again for an investor only kind of chew what you can afford to, to to chew and potentially lose as well.
0: Yeah, well I just appreciate you like answering on my my question I was just curious like I just honestly never thought to like ask anybody as to why. Um going back to the comments you made just kind of some of the principles and it's just sticking with me when you talk about investing in yourself and I kind of get this feeling that that's something you did you invested in yourself um you have your name on your firms uh uh, it's named after you and so would love to just kind of maybe go back a little bit to the beginning axel and hear about your own journey in the financial markets like what was it for you that got you interested in this space and um you know kind of going out and building uh this this firm
1: Yeah, well, I'm a little bit of a hopeless and unique case. Um, I had talked about the stock market as a kid because my dad was in the business. Um, I remember on October 87, picking up the phone of the one investor that uh, one client my dad had who had told my dad not to hedge the portfolio and uh, a very wealthy investor. Um, In college, I started taking on some, some first client money. I never really worked for anybody else um, other than summer jobs. I eventually dropped out of a PhD program to start Merck Investments. I started it back in Europe, um, took it to the US in 2001, and then we turned it into a quote unquote real business in 2005 when we launched the first mutual fund. Uh, We just shut down. We at some point had four mutual funds. We just shut down the last uh, liquidated last mutual fund. Unfortunately, that's a dying breed. Um, so these days, we have a few exchange-traded products and do a few other things. Um, so it's been a, a fascinating world. One of the drivers, just talking about the investment side, not so much about the personal side, is that the regulatory overhead has gotten bigger and bigger. And I trust the audience doesn't care too much about the details of that. But the, the relevance of that is that the way I look at regulation is it increases the barrier to entry um which means that stifles innovation because the the small company cannot participate if they can't comply with all the regulation that comes in i mean some of it is good and some of it is bad to look at the crypto space like anybody can create an exchange even if they don't have the proper controls in place and then the regulator comes in and puts a stop to that and and guess what it's going to be more difficult to participate in that um and, and i guess there's a reason why not everybody can just come out with medication right the The FDA has a bunch of rules. But if you just think globally and and on a on a macro level, the countries that have the most red tape are held back the most, right? For years we had negative interest rates in big chunks of the world. Well, there's something seriously wrong in that, right? In the in the previous administration here in the US, yields were heading higher because red tape was cut. Um, and of course, you can argue about the details and so forth. But if you want to have growth, if you want to have the supply side to do well, you've got to think about ways of fostering investments. And it's one of the things that's so sad about what happened in the UK. Um, clearly, they, these, some of the things that happened on the tax cut side were, were botched. and, and, and uh, But the new government in the UK just gets rid of everything, including the, the ban on fracking, for example. Well, if you need more energy, that is one way you can do that. But of course, that requires leadership to communicate as to why certain things need to be done. And, and so kind of, I'm pivoting here to, to the UK from asking about my own journey. Sorry about no, that. keep going, but no, it's the, interesting. But, <laughs> but um, I have always been a person who does things. Right. Um and so on the on a personal level, um before the pandemic my fam, my wife and I, we bought a, a ranch where we have a vineyard and, and so we're we're doing things, right? A great escape to get there and, and build things, right? Rather than just talk about things. Um a lot of people say they've spent more time on the television during the pandemic. I, I Last time I watched a movie was on a, on a. I was just on a forty-eight hour trip to Europe, and there I watched movie on 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 the seat in the plane. I don't have time to watch watch uh, watch a movie these days, with rare rare exceptions. Maybe one once a month I get to see one. I'm just too busy with with pursuing passions uh, left and right. So ultimately, I'm a a doer, and uh, we can. Talk about all the wonderful things I do, but I, I don't think your audience is all that's interested in the details. No,
0: people, they, I, believe it or not, I think people are interested in, like, the human side of things, too. And I think you touched yeah. on a lot of very real things, um, especially, like, w- when it comes to regulation. And um, you're just mentioning, like, you know, if you cut some of the red tape, you can unleash some growth. And I think there are a lot of people who out there are building businesses, and they encounter this every single day. It's just something that's not often talked about, you know?
1: yeah and 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 ultimately, right, building a business running a business is is a lot about dealing with the problem of the day. You obviously need to have a vision um by the way, during the pandemic, one of the things I learned a lot is much more people's management right um spend we have i i we're regulated like big business I consider us to be a small business, even though we manage about a billion um but everybody in in our firm is in a different phase in their life, and so every week I had to had to and wanted to spend time with each one to make sure that they're okay right um Something I probably should have done pre pandemic as well, but the pandemic really um taught us that those sort of things do do really matter, especially for for retention and and trying to kind of motivate a team. Um And so we all kind of grow in our own ways and do this and that and and then then yes, you need to have your your outlets outside of work um one of my one of my outlets is to rant about the fed <laughs> it's, it's one of the things I need to do once in a while, and uh, I do that on on Twitter as well um and by the way, I, I get good feedback on that. One of the reasons I use social media is because um unlike my team at work, right they don't mind telling me what i say is stupid um when if and when it is <laughs> the case right and and so i can um it, it's a it's a great sounding board and and a cross check of some ideas that i have
0: that's how we found each other was on uh on twitter are,
1: are you telling me that something <laughs> is stupid <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no definitely not no I'm, no did no, i no, also no, read media. did i also read that you're a pilot is that true?
1: Yes, that is one of my outlets. The the beauty about flying is that you need to fully focus on the fly, So you cannot think about the Fed. You cannot think about the markets. You've got to think about that. I've flown um, since the 90s, and uh, one of the things um, I added during the pandemic is a helicopter rating um, because it got too complicated to just deal with the bureaucracy at the airport. So you decided you there are alternatives. So I mentioned I'm a doer rather than just a talk. And so I decided to do it, and I did it, and it is great fun.
0: Look, I bet there are some parallels to it, probably dealing with turbulence and staying calm and having a plan. I'm sure there are things that translate to it.
1: Yes. Well, uh, lots of journalists try to make these parallels and they often don't quite work, but <laughs> because it's, people don't I understand the dynamics, but it's, but, um, but, but yes, I mean, uh, having, having a steady hand is important. The, the one thing, I mean, a helicopter, you have it a little bit, but in, in, in a, in a, a fixed wing plane, you don't have a pause button. Right, And that's really the, the, the main thing. You always got to think about what next. And uh, you'll be, uh, you practice emergencies and whatever it is. But the main thing is to stay calm, right? You assess the situation and then you make a decision based on what you see. And and there are many similarities of course to the markets, right? You don't want to panic just because something happens in the markets.
0: Again, you have so many great um, lessons and maximums and principles. Axel, um, I want to pass it back to you and just give you a moment for any parting thoughts you might have and um, share where folks can learn about um, you, your firm, um, you know, if you want to share some of your social media. Um, So I'll just give you a couple of minutes.
1: Well, sure, I'll be be brief on that, right? Um, If you want to get me unfiltered on Twitter is probably the best place, at Axel Merck. Um, My speech is censored, meaning I'm subject to all the wonderful compliance things, so I'll be much more boring than some folks, but I will give you my latest interpretation of what I see happening, um, mostly focused on on what's happening, economy, monetary policy, and so forth. Um, You will get the occasional off-topic tweet. Um, If you wanna learn more what we do at Merck Investments, um, we have several websites, but merckinvestments.com is really the, the best place to go. From there, you can go to The other sites, I can't talk much about the products um, that we have on on a venue like this, but you can find information on there. there. As as I mentioned, we we manage about a billion gold, um, that's physical gold, gold mining, um, investing in the small explorers we do. Uh, We have a Stagflation ETF. We have a free newsletter there um, that you can sign up to. We publish a lot of charts if you wanna dive deeper. So lots and lots of stuff to investigate. Um, and, uh, and yes, um, try, and we try to be in, in various places because everybody quote unquote consumes their information differently these days. And so we try to be there where, where investors are.
0: Love it. Well, Axel Merck, CIO and founder of Merck Investments. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. I feel like I learned a ton. I took a lot of notes and thank you just for teaching us all. Really appreciate you being so generous with your time and ideas. Thank you so much, Axel.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. You'll have a great show here.
0: Thank you. Really appreciate it. Take care.
1: Bye.